Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Good Dog Pod. I am Dr. Michael Delgado, and today we are talking with Dr. Hal Herzog. Dr. Herzog is one of the most distinguished anthrozoologists in the world, and if you're wondering what an anthrozoologist is, that means he's an expert on human-animal relationships. Yes, you can specialize in this. Hal's research interests include the impact of pets on human health and well-being, attitudes toward the use of animals, and the evolution of pet keeping. He's Professor Emeritus at Western Carolina University. Professor Emeritus means it's basically a fancy term for retired, but I know that Hal refuses to really retire. (laughs) Among his many accomplishments are multiple awards for teaching and research, and he's published dozens of scientific papers. Hal's work has been covered by NPR, USA Today, Newsweek, and Scientific American, among many other news sources, and he currently blogs about pets and people at Psychology Today. Hal is the author of the fantastic book, Some We Love, Some We Hate, Some We Eat, why it's so hard to think straight about animals. And what I love so much about Hal's work is how he explores that uncomfortable space of ethical dilemmas and contradictions related to our relationships with animals. It's complicated, and Hal is not afraid to ask why. So I invited Hal to join us at the Good Dog Pod today to discuss some of his research looking at social contagions or trends specifically in relation to dog breed popularity. And we're also going to talk about whether pets are really good for our health. Hal, welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Well, thanks so much for inviting me to talk. It's great to be able to talk with you again. Yeah, Hal and I have known each other for a long time, but this is like my first time to really pick his brain and interview Uh, him on some of his research. So I'm very excited. But I always like to start by just kind of letting people get to know my guest. So when you started your academic journey, you were, I believe, doing research on snake personality. So how did you get from snakes to human-animal relationships? Well, there's a sort of a complicated story, but I was in a situation where I had gotten a master's degree in working at a small college, Western North Carolina, as an adjunct professor. And they liked me and they said, well, we'd like to offer you a tenure track position, but you got to get a PhD. <laughs> and so my research area was reptile behavior. I'd work with snakes. I'd work with alligators and crocodiles and things like that. As you said, snake personality. But I didn't have access to that stuff in my little farmhouse out in the rural <laughs> Western North Carolina, but I did have chickens around. So I thought my PhD on chicken behavior. So I talked my major professor into saying, okay, do it with chicken behavior. I thought, well, I'll look at strain differences in chickens and baby chicks. It'd be really easy. I could do the research in my basement. You know, I had a hatchery <laughs> in my basement. You did? Yeah, I did. I did. I had a little hatchery in my basement. But I thought, you know, I was looking at these different types of chickens. And it turns out one of my neighbors was a cockfight. I thought, wow, wouldn't it be wild to see Gamecock chicks were different than regular chicks? I had no idea that there was this underground world of cockfighting in my neighborhood. So I wound up, long story, but I wound up basically doing most of my dissertation on the cockfighting culture of Western North Carolina. Wow. So I spent two years sort of being a lurker, being like an anthropologist, tending illegal cockfights in Western North Carolina. And the thing that was impressed me so much about it was that these cockfighters had this moral universe that was so different than mine. They had these rationalizations why their sport was not only morally okay, but was actually admirable. 
But the other thing is that they weren't the creepy, psychosexual, <laughs> you know, murderers and rapists that the stereotype was. In fact, they're just everyday people. You know, one guy's a pharmacist, one guy's a truck driver, one guy's a mayor of a small town. One was a police detective that was there not to investigate because he was a rooster fighter. And so I got to know these people. The more I got really interested in their sort of moral worlds, like how could good people, these people were married, they went to church on Sunday, they had kids, they had pets, they loved the house. They even loved the, to say they loved the roosters is too strong, but they knew more about animals than most people did. And they had thought more deeply about chickens and the use of chickens than most chicken eaters do. Right. And so right. that sort of got me interested in it. Yeah. I mean, when you said cockfighters, I immediately had an image in my mind and it wasn't like a pharmacist. <laughs> right. Exactly. So I still doing my reptile research, but I then, so I got my PhD, I went on, got the job, got another job. And then I started getting more and more interested in this stuff. I read Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. And I was really, it was very uh, taken by the book. I thought, you know, we have to take these moral issues seriously. But I thought when it comes to human moral thinking, especially about animals, logic only gets you so far. In fact, it doesn't get you very far. <laughs> Most of our ethical ethics about animals are dealing with the peculiarities of human psychology. Yeah. So the next study I did was on animal rights activists. I went from cockfighters <laughs> to animal rights activists. And so that's how I wound up in anthrozoology. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And eventually I was getting bored with my own research on snake personalities. And I thought, you know, life's too short. If you're bored by your own research, it's time to shift gears. And so I shifted gears, got rid of my snakes, and I've never been bored by the study of human-animal interactions. It's okay. always as fascinated by it now as I was when I started. I mean, I'm assuming snakes are not inherently boring, but... <laughs> oh, I still love snakes. When I was on Abington last week, the snake, unfortunately, for the snake, crossed the bicycle path. I immediately had to jump out and, and capture him and, <laughs> and mess with him for a couple of minutes and then gently let him go. All right. So yeah, from snakes to chickens to people, you've done a lot of different research in your career and you published a bunch of papers maybe 10, 15 years ago about dog breed popularity. And so that was what really made me think like, we got to get Hal on here to talk about this because it's really interesting research. And reviewing the papers you wrote, you know, it seems like there's kind of two pieces to the research on dog breed popularity. And, you know, you can tell me if there's more, but there was kind of this idea about what motivates cultural change in general, like, you know, memes and trends or whatever we're calling exactly. it nowadays. And then there's the part where this is actually reflected in people's both dog breeding and dog purchasing decisions, right? So it actually has an impact on dog breeders and what people want in a puppy. And I know this is like asking a lot, but can you kind of summarize like the big messages from this research you did about breed popularity and what it means for, for dog owners? Yeah, I was very fortunate in that the American Kennel Club sent me an absolutely amazing data set. It was the number of puppies registered with the AKC between 1927 and 2005. Wow. So people talk about, you know, they're sitting around at the bar in the conferences at night to, oh man, my study had, you know, a hundred subjects and my had a thousand subjects. And I said, no, man, I got 60 million subjects in my, it's so not a sample. Puppies. It's not a sample. It's the whole entire population of every purebred puppy registered with the AKC in the United States for decades. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And so what I did was the first thing when I got this data is I graphed it. And I graphed at that time there were 150 recognized breeds. There's more now. Yeah. And I graphed every breed. And the thing that I noticed was that some breeds never got popular. Lots of breeds never got popular. Mm -hmm. Perfectly good breeds never had more than a hundred 
puppies registered in a year, you know, over a 50-year period. And other breeds had this slow but steady rise to popularity like Labrador Retrievers. Mm -hmm. Still America's number one dog, but it was this slow, steady progression into American lives and our homes and the way that we think about dogs. And then there are some breeds who just went nuts that just suddenly would just spike in popularity and take off. The biggest one was poodles that between 1949 and about 1965 increased 12,000% in puppy registrations. Wow. And eventually 6 million poodles were registered with the AKC and they had to hire a person just to handle poodle registration. <laughs> That's going to be an interesting job title, right? Poodle specialist. Yes, it's got to be. But then there were these breeds like classic one, the best graph I've ever seen ever was the rise and fall of the Irish setter. That in uh, about 2000, gosh, I I don't have the exact dates with me now, but in the early, early, late 1960s, went from about, you know, a couple thousand, you're sort of holding steady for a couple thousand, suddenly spike up to 75,000 new puppy registrations. But about a 10-year period. And then they crash just as fast. So that the graph, the graph is just so stunningly beautiful. You know, I look at that graph like other people look at the Mona Lisa. And when I first did it, <laughs> I went around and I knocked on the door of every colleague of mine and said, look at this graph, look at this graph. You've never seen a graph like this in your life. It's so symmetrical. It's so perfect. Why Irish setters and why then? Oh, well, that's a good question. That's a good question. We really don't know. In some cases, we do know. So, for example, what our studies have shown, we published probably a dozen papers or so based on this, myself and other people that have used this database. So with Irish sitters, who knows? And the people that I've worked with originally on this were people that studied baby names. Why baby names get popular? So it turns out that if you map my Irish setter graph on the graph of the name Jennifer, it's almost the exact same thing. By the way, Jennifer Aniston was born about the same time. Her name was registered. <laughs> and the question is, you know, why were people suddenly naming their daughters Jennifer? You know, we really, we really don't know. And all getting Irish setters at the same time. Yes, exactly. And, you know, I have grass. I, I, Jennifer Aniston sort of looks like an Irish setter in some ways. <laughs> oh she really does. <laughs> but I did. I hooked up with these guys that were mathematical geneticists and anthropologists, and they were able to make sense of this, which I couldn't do. And basically, it turns out that dog breed popularity mirrors is an example of a general thing called the logic of fashion cycles. And so the graphs, my Irish setter graphs, or my graph, my dog breed graphs, and the mathematical models that explain the dog breed popularity are very close to the same models that predict rises and falls in baby names, in sneaker styles, (laughs) in citations of academic papers. Why do some academic papers become Mm -hmm. popular and Mm -hmm. others not become And Neolithic pottery styles. So basically, what I argue is that dogs are essentially a form of fashion. Mm. They're memes, and they're memes that can spread and sometimes spread incredibly rapidly. That's very interesting. So they're kind of like fashion. There's not always a clear reason, except someone sees the Irish setter, and then they're like, I want one of those. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And so the other thing that we found is that the question is, is it function or fashion. Let's say, did the Labrador Retriever get popular because it's basically a breed known as being a sweet dog and a good family dog and you know right. it deserves to be popular. Sure. But on the other hand, dog breeds can get popular that really don't deserve to be popular. And I don't want to offend any of your listeners, but sure. take, for example, the French Bulldog. Mm. So the French Bulldog has shot up in popularity incredibly rapidly. And the question is, 
But let's put it separately. The better breeds become more popular. Right. And I would say in the case of the Irish Setter, that would be an example where a, a objectively good breed becomes popular. But what about French Bulldogs? One of the studies that we did is we looked at breed popularity and we correlated it with behavioral traits mm -hmm. as defined by James Serple's well-known Seabark yes. uh, dog behavior questionnaire. Does a dog bark a lot? Does it have these problems and stuff like that? And what we found is that there was no relationship between a dog having positive traits or negative traits and, and their popularity. behavioral traits and popularity. Oh, that's so interesting. We did find that there was one thing that was related to breed popularity. That was genetic disorders. We found <laughs> that more popular breeds tended to have more genetic disorders. Right. And again, the French Bulldog is a really good example of a dog that's become popular, but that has uh, built in very serious genetic problems. And there's been some interesting research out of, I believe, the UK too, looking at like the brachycephalic dogs and... Those of us who study human-animal relationships are very familiar with a term called kinderschema, right? Which is like the baby face and like the things that kind of attract caretaking and humans to maybe be baby-like traits or human-like traits, right? And some of those dogs do have the rounder face and bigger eyes. And so there's that whole aspect of it too that further complicates, I guess, humans' attraction to, to pets. Yeah. So I would argue that the French Bulldog is an example of a mistake in a way, you know, so it's a meme that has spread that did not necessarily benefit the dogs. On the other hand, there are memes that have spread that have tremendously benefited dogs. Mm -hmm. And the best example is the rise of the rescue dog. Mm -hmm. So right now, the most popular breed in the United States, uh, according to some sources, is the mixed breed dog. Yeah. And when I talk to a lot of people about their dogs, like when I see somebody, you know, I'll go up to them, walk up to them and say, oh, you know, nice dog. You know, is it in this? Sometimes I'm right, sometimes wrong. You know, what I found is almost comical. Usually when I ask somebody about their dogs, within two sentences, they use the word rescue or abused or that mm -hmm. the animal was somehow saved or is adopted from an animal shelter. And so in the 1970s, we were killing in American animal shelters about 75 million unwanted dogs and cats a year. Now, because of the spay and neuter meme spreading mm -hmm. and the idea of adopting a dog rather than letting a dog die in a shelter, we're down to killing less than a million or two million right. dogs and cats a year in animal shelters. So I'd argue that that's a dog meme that has spread, which has actually been a great benefit. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's definitely influenced attitudes about breeding because now people, there's not enough dogs to always meet the demand in certain areas. So it's been an interesting trend. Now, right. the other thing that we haven't touched on, but I know in your research was I'm talking about the impact of movies on dog breed popularity, right? So some of it, I think, you know, from reading your work, some of it seemed to be random, right? Like just you said, for whatever reason, this breed takes off just like sneakers or pottery or whatever. And then, well, it seems like for some breeds, there's a bust, right? So there's a boom and then there's a bust. And then other breeds like the Labrador Retrievers or the Goldens, it's like steady, right. never wavers. Right. So can you talk a little bit about like the influence of TV or movies and also whether or not you think that nowadays other celebrities or internet are influencing breed popularity? Yeah, what we found was there is a dog movie star effect. And what we found, we went back basically back to the 1920s and up into the 1950s and 60s. Disney movies did have an impact that dogs that were featured in Disney uh, movies like the Shaggy Dog and 101 Dalmatians, <laughs> those breeds did have a tendency to become more popular. However, what we also found was that 
in the last 10 or 15 years, the last years that we had the data, which would really be back into the 90s, that the effect of dog movies had been really diluted. (laughs) And our guess is that's because there were just so many more movies around that had dogs. Is that, you know, I'd kind of forgotten about some of those dog movies, like the Shaggy DA, right? I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. The other thing is that we found is that there's a popular view that winning Westminster Oh. has a major effect on dog breed popularity. And it's just not true. Interesting. We did a study on Westminster. You know, the Westminster winners, winners become popular. And the answer is no. In fact, the Labrador Retriever and the French Bulldogs are breeds that have never won Westminster. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Lab has never won Westminster. Maybe they're too common. Well, what happens is it turns out that Westminster judges, these are people that are real serious dog people. Yes. And what the average person wants in a dog is like a good companion and things like that. But that's not what the AKC really stands for. And so with Westminster, the terriers have won an incredible proportion. In terms of the popularity of the group, they're not a particularly popular group amongst people that actually live with dogs. But Westminster judges love them. Okay. And what about like, I know since you don't have more current data, but I guess I think about like Paris Hilton and the Chihuahua in her purse or... Lady Gaga's got French bulldogs, right? Yeah, she does. Yeah. So how do you think the internet has? Well, that's interesting. I think it's had a huge impact. In fact, just before we started talking, I looked up dog Instagram stars. Oh. And that's well worth doing. Yeah, look up dogs, dog fan base on Instagram. So it turns out there's a lot of money in dogs and Instagram. So the most popular dog last year was a wolf dog mix Hmm. and it had 2 million Instagram followers. That's just going to depress me because how does a dog... Oh, the dog's name was Loki. The dog's name was Loki. And the next one was a French bulldog. Mm -hmm. And having the million Instagram followers had translated into an annual income of $400,000. And I'm not sure how Instagram, I don't know, you know, I'm not an Instagram follower, but I don't know how that happens. And the next one, the next most popular breed was a French bulldog, which had a million Instagram followers and had brought in for its owner. I'm assuming its owner gets the money. (laughs) Somebody gets the money that had brought in $200,000. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I think the internet has had a huge thing, but that's an area. If I were looking for a research project right now, yeah, there's got to be a ton of data on that. And it's got to be a goldmine for researchers. Yeah. Well, one other thing that's, I'd say, new since your research was published is an increase in crossbreeds, such as all the doodles. And I know your daughter got a doodle and she she loves her dog. So what do you think has driven the demand? Because, you know, people are paying a lot of money for a crossbreed dog. Yeah, these breeds... I see them as designer dogs, which has a bit more panache than than crossbreed, you know, a designer dog. So, yeah, the first one was the Laverell Doodle, as I recall, which came from Australia in the 1980s. And I recently saw a paper from Australia where they asked Australians, why did you get a doodle? And the number one reason was the idea that this particular doodle, this particular designer dog, golden doodles, were known for being hypoallergenic. Now, the degree that that's true, which I think unclear, but in fact, that's why Katie and Jan got their dog moose. Another reason, the second most popular reason that people gave was that dogs were known and reputed to be great dogs to live with and like Labradors, like Poodles, you know, intelligent and easy to live with. And I know, you know, my experience with my daughter's dog moose is that he's the best dog I've ever seen. (laughs) I don't say that lightly. (laughs) They're in love with him and he's in love with them, with the two. And it's a beautiful match. 
But it's interesting, we don't have the same types of data on that because the AKC, first of all, they don't recognize some of the most popular breeds. They don't recognize mixed breed dogs. They don't register pit bull dogs, which are probably the most popular dog breed in the United States at one point. And they don't register as desired dogs. So we don't really know what the data is like on breed registration. That's right, yeah. Although they do let them compete in some of their like agility and that kind of stuff. But yeah. They've started because they're trying to expand their base because they're losing income because of the registrations going down. Right. And the other thing, by the way, I thought about this just before we started talking. I think you can get a doodle and you're sort of getting a purebred dog, but it's also a mutt. You know, there's a moral superiority of not having a purebred registered dog now. The animal rights movement has sort of vilified that. Mm, Yeah. And so the doodles have got the best of all worlds, you know. They sort of get this reputation of being a class act, you know. (laughs) Literally a class act. Yeah. Because you're going to pay a ton of money for these Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So they're a class act, but they're also a mutt. Right. And so, yeah, I think that might probably be as important as being hypoallergenic. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I think there's still a lot to be learned as far as like this concept of like hybrid vigor and whether or not they're actually yes. healthier. Or, yeah, I think that that's the way I look at that. Yeah. And the other thing, of course, is that popularity breeds popularity. Yep. And so once you cross that, that's what our data has shown with these dogs that suddenly get popular is that the more popular a dog is, the more you see them around, the more they're likely to be on Instagram, the more likely to have your neighbors have one and the more likely you are to think about, hey, I'm going to get one of those. So the doodle is becoming a meme. The doodle is a meme. Doodle is a meme. All right. We are here with Dr. Hal Herzog. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You invest so much in your dogs. Sleepless nights spent next to a whelping box, countless visits to the vet, love, hard work, and heart every day. That's why we built Payments on Good Dog to support you and provide your program with the protection you deserve for free. Payments on Good Dog is our secure payment platform that guarantees payments for you and your puppy buyers. Learn more about Payments on Good Dog by following the link in the show notes, whether you're already a member of Good Dog or interested in joining. We are back at the Good Dog Pod this week with Dr. Hal Herzog. So Hal, you've written a lot on your blog about I think it's probably a controversial idea, which you do not shy away from, but you know, the fallacy of the pet effect. So I think a lot of people hear over and over again in the media that pets are good for our mental and physical health. So can you talk a little bit about the pet effect and what the research really says about it? Yeah, I don't want to call it the fallacy of the pet effect. That's a little too strong, but I'm now calling this the pet effect paradox. Okay. So let me say what the pet effect is, and then we can talk about the, the paradoxical nature of it. The pet effect is the idea that people with pets are more healthy, both Mm -hmm. physically and mentally healthier than people that don't have pets. And the subtext of that is that getting a pet will cause you to have better health, physical and mental health, better health and well-being. And this idea was really kicked off by a study, an incredibly important study, the most important study in anthrozoology, a 1980 study by Erica Friedman as part of her doctoral dissertation. And she was studying basically survivorship from heart attacks, people that have heart attacks. Hmm. She had 100 individuals that had been in cardiac care and she went back and you know, she interviewed them and she'd ask them, give them questionnaires. And she was particularly interested in social support, you know, how many friends they had and, and hmm. things like that. But she also put a question in there, I bet you own a pet. And just threw it in there. You know? That wasn't and, like her research question. No, it, was just, not, yeah, no it wasn't a research question. So it turned out that when she went back a year later, that I think 25% of the people that did not have a pet had died. 
Hmm. And only 4% of the people that did have a pet had died. It was a huge effect and it made national headlines and all that stuff. And so people started looking at this idea in a serious way about pets and health. And a number of studies early on found that, for example, petting a dog, you know, reduced blood Hmm. pressure, things like that. So there's this whole idea. And this really kicked off the field of anthropology and human-animal relationships that none of us that were involved in this early on ever anticipated the incredible popularity that our field has gone through. And the fact that people can make a living doing research and studying human-animal interactions. And I had been to a lot of conferences and heard a lot of talks by friends of mine who had done research in supporting this idea that pet owners are happier, they're healthier, mm-hmm. they're less depressed. Hey, if it helps you not die from a heart attack, right? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Sign me up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I never was interested in doing any research on this myself because it seemed like a lot of other people were doing it. And I was more interested in this ethics stuff. And then I wound up writing my book. This is about 2010. I wound up writing a book on human-animal interactions. And I had to include a chapter on pets. I didn't even want, I, you know, I was got to have a chapter on pets. And so I started looking at the literature on the pet effect, and I was pretty surprised. And what I found is my filing cabinet, when I'm writing like that, is my floor of my office. And so I had a stack of papers about an inch thick on showing that pets are good for people. And to my surprise, I started seeing these papers that found that pets, there was no differences in physical and mental health. And that stack kept getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> and then there was a stack of papers that was somewhat smaller that reported that pet owners were actually worse off. Mm-hmm. And so I began to question this whole idea. And I'm increasingly, and at the same time, the pet industry was getting wise to this stuff yep. and the pet products industry. And they started funding research on the pet effect, specifically stating that they fund research showing that pets benefit our health and our well-being. So they had a horse in the race. And what's happened since then is I've been sort of monitoring this area. And I'm finding that research evidence for the idea that pets are good for people is much weaker than I had originally anticipated. Sure. And what's happened now is there are now thousands and thousands of papers on this. And when you actually look at these papers, what you see is that there's a pattern of very mixed results. And let me talk about two things. Specifically, when you look at the impact of pets on health, yes, studies show that pet owners tend to be in better health. They tend to have fewer heart attacks. They tend to be less overweight, all these things. Some studies have found this. But there's other things that make pet owners different too. They tend to be younger. Mm. Some studies have found significantly they're more likely to be women who live longer and generally have better health than men. There's uh, racial and socioeconomic differences. Pet owners tend to have more money. Pet owners are more likely to be white rather than African-American or Hispanic. And all these things are also related to health. So what epidemiological studies have started doing is instead of just looking at whether pet owners are healthier, they're also throwing in taking these other things into account. So it turns out that when you take these into account, in most studies, the health effects of it disappear. Right. In fact, if anything, if you look at the data, there's a significant number of studies that show that petters are worse off, if anything. (laughs) In fact, there was a recent study that found that out, that Catherine Amy and Brock Bastian and their colleagues did, that found that Canadian pet owners during COVID had considerably Mm -hmm. worse health and were worse off in terms of their mental well-being. So what I've been looking at lately, I've been doing a series of sort of things that I've published on my blog for psychology today on what the studies have actually shown. And let's, let me give an example. I was able to find 21 studies 
that looked at the impact of pets on loneliness. And the question is, are pet owners less lonely? Which you would think they would be. <laughs> right, right. And the pet products industry says that pet owners are lonely. Well, I found 21 studies. And of those studies, only six of those found that pet owners were less lonely. Same thing with depression. I found 33. I just found a couple more. 33 studies on depression. Only five of them found that pet owners were actually less lonely. Same thing with happiness. And these are objective measures. These are standardized measures of depression, happiness, loneliness, and things like that. Of 13 studies on pets and happiness, would you like to guess how many found that pet owners were happier? I'll go with six. No, you're wrong by a fact by six. Oh, zero, 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 zero. So you found that pet owners were happy. Okay. So basically we have like a few problems, right? Correlation is not causation. So we can't fix a mental health problem or a physical health problem with a cat or a dog. That's correct. However, according to a survey done by Habri, this is a trade industry group, a pet products industry funded group that supports research and publicizes research showing that animals are good for people. According to them, 60% of physicians have recommended that their patients get a pet, at least one of their patients get a pet for medical reasons. So they're pushing the idea that pets are the cheapest and easiest drug you can take (laughs) to improve your mental well-being. And they claim that scientific studies have shown this, when in fact, scientific studies have shown just the opposite for the most part. Yeah. I mean, it can be stressful to have pets. They cost money, they get sick, they have behavior problems. So I think it's interesting. And I think, you know, I can think of reasons why this idea is promoted. But so when you talk about the stuff you talk about, and I assume because you like to talk about controversial things, you like (laughs) to talk about ethics, that you're not afraid to like anger people, but like what kind of responses do you get? Do people get angry about your blog posts or? What's been really interesting, most interesting to me is the responses of my fellow researchers who do Mm. research on the pet effect. Okay. And I would have thought that they would hate me and (laughs) they tend not to. In fact, they've been incredibly supportive. Nice. They cite my critical papers when we get together at meetings, which we used to do pretty regularly before COVID. You know, we'd sure. be talking in the bar and we're all like shaking our heads. It's like, wait a minute, this pet effect thing has completely been overblown. And so yeah. I've been surprised that I have not become a pry in my field. <laughs> in fact, just the opposite. You know, I get invited to give talks and stuff like that. Nice, nice. Okay. When I talk to my friends about, in fact, I was just talking to a friend the other day, asking what I was up to. And this guy's a former veterinarian. And I was telling him, well, you know, I'm looking at the impact of pets on, I just did a review of 16 studies that looked at the impact of pets on COVID, you know, when people got pandemic pets. And of the 16 studies, only one of them found (laughs) that the pet owners were better off. Okay. How do I know you're going to give us some bleak statistic? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A very bleak statistic. I was really surprised. Only one of them found that the pet owners were better off. And he just basically shook his head and I could tell he just didn't believe me. <laughs> and so if I'm in a party and I tell people, you know, what do you do? Well, I said, you're an interaction with the impact of pets on human health. What do you find? I say like, well, they're not really good for you. The, the evidence does not show that they're good for you. They just don't believe me. Yeah. But here's the problem. I don't even believe myself. <laughs> this is why I call this a paradox yeah. is because I know my own personal experience with pets contradicts yeah. this. Yeah. As you know, my cat, my beloved cat Tilly recently died and I'm still feeling the effects of that. Oh yeah. And I know that if I'm by myself, you know, I'm at home, it's just me and the cat. It's just great having another creature in there. And she was not the warmest of cats, (laughs) you know, she was a tough cookie. Yeah. But so our own experience with pets contradicts 
what the science says. And I think most researchers are like this. You know, there's what I call the Fauci effect. The Fauci effect is, by the way, I'm a supporter of Fauci, you know, but whenever I hear Fauci or anyone else talks about, well, the science says, anybody that's a real scientist knows that there's almost nothing that the science clearly says, you know, especially now. And so the science changes. And what we're seeing now is that somehow our scientific measures are not picking up something about this pet thing. And so that's why I don't call it the, I don't say that the pet effect is false belief. Right. I call it a paradox. Our personal experience doesn't match what the science says. Well, and it's possible that as an individual, we would feel even more depressed or less happy if we didn't have the pets in our life, right? And that's the hard part. We don't do it before and after, right? Like here's you before you get a dog and here's you after you get a dog. So Right. Yeah, that's exactly correct. There's only one study that's done that. And they Hmm. found when you took out socioeconomic factors, Ah. having the dog, getting the dog, the experimental group that got the dog eight months later was no different. Ah. Once you took in socioeconomic facts than the other. But the other thing is that pets can make your life miserable too. And you know that, you know, as an animal behaviorist, you know, animal therapy person, you know, pets can make people miserable. They can. I put a question on Facebook one time and it was, let me know if you've ever been injured by tripping or falling over pets. The stories I got were just incredible. In the United States, 85,000 people a year are taken to the hospital emergency room because they trip over their pack. You know, wow. 5 million okay. people are bitten by dogs. Sure. Dogs are second biggest source of conflict between neighbors. Oh, interesting. So there's a downside. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you've been studying humans and animals for years. Why do you think dogs are so important to people? The two parts to that. One is that, what do you mean by people? And if we're talking about Americans... Mm. What we find is that dogs are very important to Americans. We have one of the highest rates of pet dog ownership in the world, Mm -hmm. about 300 dogs per 1,000 people in the United States. On the other hand, I think the UK is about half that, Hmm. about 150 dogs. In Egypt, it's about 10 dogs per person. So this supports my argument that pets are very entwined with the culture that we're living in, that they are memes, and their memes have spread differently in different cultures. But dogs are special. There's no question about that. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. And I'm not a dog expert, so I don't want to pretend I am. But I think one thing is that there's pretty good evidence that dogs understand humans in really mm-hmm. special ways. Yeah. And this was research initially I ran into. It was a study done by Brian Hare, now at Duke University. Adam McClosey in Hungary was out sort of doing the same thing looking and comparing a dog's ability to understand human pointing behavior. And chimpanzees have bigger brains than dogs, and they're, one would think, smarter than dogs, but they're hopeless at following human gestures like pointing. Similarly, wolves, you can teach a wolf to understand a human point, but it's much more difficult than it is with the dogs. So dogs have evolved in an incredibly short period of time to ingratiate, behaviorally ingratiate (laughs) themselves into our world. Clive Wynn, who is an excellent canine researcher, his book is called Dog is Love. Great book. And what he argues is that basically dogs are sort of love machines (laughs) and that they're programmed, that the dogs that survived in evolutionary history were the, the short, brief evolutionary history were the ones that were able to ingratiate themselves and attach themselves to humans. And Clive also argues, probably correctly, he's got the data, that dogs, they're not just geared toward falling in love with humans, but they are also able to fall in love with other creatures as well, other types of animals as well. So I think there are some reasons that dogs are special. Yeah. What's one question about dogs that you wish we knew the answer to? Well, 
The one question about dogs that I wish we knew the answer to is I think we will never have an answer to, which is what is it like to be a dog? Mm. And the philosopher Thomas Nagel wrote a famous paper in philosophy called What Is It Like to Be a Bat? And I remember one time I was at a very prestigious animal behavior congress in Japan. And I was at a session with primate researchers. These are probably 30 or 40 of the world's really great primate researchers. And this was back in the late 70s. Somebody stood up and asked a question that I thought was so dumb at the time. He said, how many of you went into this field because you wanted to know what it was like to be an animal? And much to my shock, about 30% of these real foremost hardcore researchers raised their hand and said, that's me. And so, yeah, my question is, what is it like to be a dog? And of course, there's important moral questions here. For example, lately, I've been asking myself the question, if I were a dog, would I rather be a street dog Mm. living on the island of Tobago around the Caribbean? Sounds nice. Sounds pretty nice. The reason I thought about that is I was right before COVID. And I spent time watching your street dogs. I thought, yeah, this guy's got it pretty good. They're calling their own shots. Yeah. They look healthy. They're calling their own shots. Or would I rather be a French bulldog living in some apartment in New York City? Or maybe with Lady Gaga. Who's basically in prison, Mm. never allowed outside unless it's on a leash or it's at the dog park, you know, who doesn't get to choose its own food, who doesn't get to choose its sexual partners. In fact, doesn't want to have any sexual partners because we've removed its testicles. So there's the question of like, what is it like to be a dog? I think has ethical. A gilded cage. Oh, a gilded cage. I love that. I love that. (laughs) I'm going to steal that. Okay. Steal away. I'm sure I stole it from someone else. Where can people find you online if they want to read your blog? My blog is called Animals and Us. And if you Google Animals and Us, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Or you can just Great. Google Hal Herzog. And that's hosted by Psychology Today, correct? Yeah, it's hosted by Psychology Today. Great. Yeah. There's something like 160 blog posts on there. And they cover everything from dog stuff to just tons of stuff about the pet effect, why humans keep pets and chimpanzees don't, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, if you want to learn more about how Google him, there's plenty of amazing interviews online and lots of great writing. Check out his book. Hal, thank you so much for being with us today. It was really fun talking to you and yeah, I really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for having me on. I love what you're doing with the podcast. 